Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, giving you even more specialized support than ever before. Like access to the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders ready to tackle anything from the most complex trading questions to a simple strategy gut check. Need assistance? No problem. Get 24-7 professional answers and live help and access support by phone, email, and in-platform chat. That's how Schwab is here for you, to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com slash trading. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com earnings right now. NetSuite.com earnings. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is Bloomberg Intelligence. Spotify have always had fantastic user momentum. Solar energy, the fastest growing corner of the energy market by far. In-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. The talent wars are right around Wall Street, but the buy side is plucking off of the sell side. Aldi was the fastest growing grocery chain in the United States last year. Bloomberg Intelligence with Alex Steele and Paul Sweeney on Bloomberg Radio. Each and every week, we provide in-depth research and data on some of the 2,000 companies and 130 industries our analysts cover worldwide. Today, we're going to take a look at why Canadian wealth managers are buying their way into the U.S. market. Plus, what challenges does Amazon face as it takes on rivals in the grocery business? A lot. But first, Cleveland Cliffs is the largest producer of automotive steel, and it's looking to shrink its operating performance gap. This comes as peers like Nucor and Steel Dynamics really forge ahead here. Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Analyst for Basic Materials, Richard Burke, uh, joins us now. Richard, what is Cleveland Cliff's issue that it has right now? Right now, it's um, twofold. One is, you know, it's in the process. It had consolidated the industry two years ago when it bought AK Steel and ArcelorMittal's U.S. businesses. So it's in the process of integrating it and bringing those up to its operating standards but also it the industry has kind of bifurcated into blast furnaces and eafs and cliffs has chosen the route of blast furnaces and there seems to be an inherent disadvantage um, of the blast furnace model versus eafs he has uh, eafs have been a little more flexible and able to deal with the volatility in the industry a little bit better than integrate than the integrates, and that's where Cliffs is facing its challenges today. Can we step back and just take, give us a sense of where the steel industry is in this country in 2023? It's not like all over the Rust Belt. I mean, how many companies are there? How many, you know, factories are there? Whatever the steel plants are there? Where are we today in, in terms of the U.S. steel footprint? Okay, basically, the footprint has really shrunk on the number of players, and this is part of Cliffs um, has part of their consolidation play here. If you look back in the um, around 2000, we had the top four players in the industry 
controlled 45% of the flat roll capacity. Now we have four players, Cleveland Cliffs, New Core, Steel Dynamics, and U.S. Steel, and they control over 80% of the industry. And a lot of it, um, where the EAFs have grown through building new, or what I would call growing younger, than building factory or building mills and things like that, you've had Cliffs really go out and buy some of the old ones that basically in two. in the early two, late 90s and early 2000, were in bankruptcy and was kind of rolled up by, um, for example, ISG, Wilbur Ross, rolled them into a company called International Steel Group, where he bought a bunch of the steel makers that went bankrupt, negotiated with the, engine, uh, with the unions to lower their pensions and lower some of the legacy liabilities. Then he turned around like three or four years later and sold these assets to ArcelorMittal. And now we have Cleveland Cliffs has essentially bought those assets. So you could see um, the industry is kind of mm-hmm. has two routes here. It's kind of bifurcated into two approaches. Um, where does China come into play? Uh, China was accused of steel dumping, which lowered the prices. So the guys in, in the U.S. got really hurt on what they were able to sell their stuff for. Then there were tariffs that were involved, which helped these guys. Like, where is this conversation on a macro level? On a macro level, you still have the U.S. basically over history has needed about 100 million tons of steel each year. Mm-hmm. They technically usually produce about 80 million. Um, so we have this 20 million deficit that we need, you know, on average each year. You know, obviously the 100 can go up and down based on the economy and things like that. What the, t- what the t- 232 tariffs do, we don't have Ch- China is not importing steel into the U.S. directly. It may be coming in through some back doors, but that's has definitely decreased over the last few years. We've seen the U.S. industry increase capacity. You've had Nucor adding capacity. You have Steel Dynamics adding capacity. You have um, U.S. Steel adding capacity. And what they've done is kind of looked at this 232 tariffs as a chance to weaken add capacity we can add newer EAF capacity, mm-hmm. which is a little more flexible, and we can kind of displace these imports that, you know, been displaced by 232. We can d- displace them on a permanent basis going forward. Richard, awesome stuff. Thanks a lot, Richard Burke, who joins us. Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Analyst for Basic Materials. Let's turn now to the tech sector. Smartphone makers like Apple and Samsung saw a slide in demand to start the year. But there are signs they could be looking at a turnaround in the second half. To take us through what to expect, we're joined by Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Hardware and Networking Analyst Wu Jinho. Wu, thanks so much for joining us here. Talk to us about this smartphone market. What are we seeing here in the beginning of 2023? A couple of things, right? So the way I'm looking at the year right now, I think the units are going to be down 1%, sales down 4%. But I parse it out in two, uh, in two halves. In the first half, there's still going to be an inventory correction. There's uh, a bit of a glut, especially in Asia, that uh, the Chinese vendors are working through. And, um, and I, I believe that that's going to start bottoming out in, in the middle of this year. But, you know, a, a new device creates a new cycle. And if I look into the second half, uh, we have a couple of things going on. Uh, number one, uh, we have the iPhone 15 coming out. And then number two... Um, there's a slew of upgrades that need to be uh, uh, that's good, that may start to flow through, not only for Apple but also for the Chinese vendors, because a lot of people have held off of uh, uh, smartphone purchases uh, going uh, since 2019. What does the macro environment have to do 
with anything that we're going to wind up seeing. Like part of it's cyclical, obviously, right? And the mm-hmm. other part is going to wind up being the economic backdrop, which is what? Yeah, you know, I, I don't think the consumer backdrop is um, great. that great. Right. right. But if we look at some of the promotional activity that's going on right now, uh, if the economic backdrop is still fairly weak, um, you still have these buy one, get one free deals. And also uh, they may keep ASPs fairly low to incentivize uh uh, consumers to buy uh, smartphones. Uh, nothing worse right now than, than a slow dying smartphone because we, there there's several. We're getting to the point where there are a lot of smartphones that are getting closer to the four or five year mark, and and they are uh, waiting to get upgraded. Wait a minute, I got my trusty iPhone 11 here. I feel yep. like I'm okay, but you're telling me I'm five cycle, four cycles behind. I hear this all the time. What is going on? Am I that well, far behind, Wujin? Paul, Paul, if, if I recall, the iPhone 11 is only 4G enabled. Oh and, um, you know, we're starting to get to um, uh, the, the part of the cycle where uh, now we're starting to see the, uh, the bulk of uh, devices, not only the iPhone, but the majority of devices that are 5G enabled. So uh, I think there are, there are a, quite a few uh, 4G users out there that are waiting to upgrade, uh, yeah, like yourself. Yeah. yeah, I might have to. I, I usually just wait for, like... Honorat to tell me. Okay, but, but but I literally feel like for six years I've been hearing we're going to see this enormous upgrade cycle because of 5G, and we haven't seen it, which makes me think that the cycle is just going to look a little different than we're used to, and then how that winds up affecting these guys. And, and, and that's fair, right? Because we were I was waiting for that cycle to happen in 4Q 2022, but um, there, there are a couple of things that, that, that was going on in 4Q 2022. Uh, we started to see the, the stimulus checks starting to run out. Uh, that's number one. Uh, the iPhone 14 really didn't excite anybody. Num- that's number two. And then number three, you know, if, if we look at the U.S., the U.S. is only about a quarter of, of, of the total uh, smartphone market. The rest of the world still buys uh, quite a bit of Chinese vendors and, and um, mid-tier smartphone vendors. Um, they, and, and, and they were struggling. The mid-tier in particular were, very, uh, were struggling in terms of delivering innovative products uh, to, to that mid-tier range. And I, I do think that uh, we're starting to get to a price point for 5G devices that's going to rival that of the 4G devices going back in 20, 2019. So there, there is a price, we're getting close to a price incentive uh, for the 5G devices um, uh, for, for the 4G users uh, to, to move over. All right, China reopening. They're there. Uh, they're letting folks go to Macau and gamble away, all that kind of stuff. And what does it mean for the smartphone market, both as supply chain as well as you know an end market for these users? Right. If, if we look at uh, China, if anything, China uh, had a head fake in 2021 uh, because they actually hit record numbers from, from a volume perspective as, as well as a revenue perspective. So they built up a lot of inventory heading into 2022. That demand never materialized because of China, China reopening uh, was later than everybody, uh, than all the other regions, right? Now that China is starting to reopen, consumers are, uh, I'm, I'm looking at some of uh, the, the Chinese, uh, the China economic numbers. And it's starting to look good right now. And if, if we recall back to our own reopening, a lot of the spending mm-hmm. was in travel, right? Mm-hmm. Less so on, on electronic goods. That travel may start to, my, my, my view is, is that travel uh, may start to wind down going into the second half and hopefully carry forward 
in, uh, 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 into electronic purchases and the necessary upgrades that they've held off on under the last three to four years. Now, now that being said, uh, the one thing I will say is that I don't think Apple is going to be the biggest beneficiary here. If I look at the, the numbers, uh, Apple already has uh, 80% revenue share, 50% market share in the high-end smartphone devices. Uh, the big winner, potentially the bigger winners here are going to be the local mid-tier uh, vendors. Woo, thanks a lot. Really appreciate Wu Jin Ho, a senior hardware and networking analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Coming up on the program, does Amazon stand a chance in the grocery space against its rooted rivals? You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney, and this is Bloomberg. Trading at Schwab is now powered by Ameritrade, unlocking the power of Thinkorswim, the award-winning trading platforms loaded with features that let you dive deeper into the market. Visualize your trades in a new light on Thinkorswim desktop with robust charting and analysis tools, all while you uncover new opportunities with up-to-the-minute market news and insights. Thinkorswim is available on desktop, web, and mobile to meet you where you are. It's built by the trading obsessed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at noon Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Amazon's been making a push into the grocery space. But according to the latest BI research, making inroads might be more of an uphill battle than expected. The tech giant would need to expand rapidly, and rooted rivals like Walmart and Kroger are unlikely to cede much ground. For more on Amazon's game plan for the grocery business, we're joined by Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Package Food and Retail Staples Analyst, Jen Bartashis. Jen, you know, they made a big splash, I guess, when they were got to get into this grocery business, Whole Foods and that. But this is a tough business. I mean, super thin margins. Um, are they pulling back at all or do you think they're still committed to it? Well, if you look at what Amazon said in their letter to shareholders, they seem to still be ready to pursue grocery. Um, and, and I think that really reflects that grocery is just so big um, and the fact that it's entrenched in everybody's lives. And so from Amazon's perspective, there's a big market opportunity and it's a way to become embedded with customers on an even deeper level. But as you said, the margins are very thin um, and it is a very tough business to crack. So how much money would Amazon need to spend to like really take on a Walmart and Kroger, for example? It's very clear after we've come out of the pandemic that 
uh, online growth for grocery has really sort of plateaued. And so it's not growing at the same rate, which means that Amazon would need to really shift investment into more stores and having physical stores. Because at the end of the day, the majority of grocery purchases are still done at a store. Um, and that, that's something that runs in the hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars, to, to quickly ramp up a store base. And so what we did was we looked at the plans that Amazon currently has in terms of sites that they're planning to open for Amazon Fresh actual physical stores. Um, and, and the problem is that they only have a little over 70 in the pipeline. Um, and 70 stores just doesn't make a dent um, in the overall grocery landscape. And that leaves Amazon with very limited options. It would have to be something with M&A um, to acquire a large store base, you know, or to really dump a lot of money into building the expertise to build a pipeline that can accelerate their growth plans. All right, Jen, in your research report, you've got a great note or a great chart listing the largest grocery chains by store count. Why don't they just go out and buy everybody but Walmart? Well, I think there's... <laughs> Good question. <laughs> I, you know, I, I think that in the, the, the current landscape, you know, Amazon is already facing scrutiny in terms of how big it is uh, uh, from a regulatory perspective. Yeah, and but that's technical. I mean, that's, that's in the tech industry. It's not in the grocery business. It's not in the grocery business, but I think, you know, people hear Amazon and they just think <laughs> Amazon as its entirety, right? Um, and, and so I think that, that there's a very, it would be a very tough path for Amazon to go ahead and acquire something. And let's be honest, they acquired Whole Foods um, for, you know, $14 billion and they've done absolutely very little with it, if anything. Um, and so, you know, and that's that's about 500 stores now. Um, and so to 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 acquire something on the scale where it would really be competitive with Walmart would would be a have to be a very large M and A deal. And it just doesn't seem like something like that would easily go through. Why why does Amazon need groceries? Like, isn't their whole purpose of life is to sign people up for Amazon Prime? Like, how does doing a grocery business help them with that? Well, the grocery business offers a, a couple of things. One is, as, as I sort of mentioned before, it helps get them entrenched in kind of the day-to-day -day lives of people even more than they already are. So it's just but like them collecting data or something? It's, it's, partly, it's partly about the, the, the purchasing patterns and things like that. Um, Grocery data is fantastic for what are called retail media networks for advertising, um, where you can then sell that data to packaged food companies um, to, to target um, promotions and things like that. But if you look at Amazon's retail business, it it is a loss. It's a loss leading business, mm -hmm. and grocery has very thin margins, but it is positive. Um, and if they could make the grocery business large enough, that would help offset. Um, the losses that they see on the retail side of their business um, when you look at Amazon in, in that respect. Hey, Jen, what is their current strategy in terms of growing stores? Do they, is it a geographic one? Do I want to be in big cities? Do I want to be in small markets? What's their strategy now? I think that's part of the problem, actually, is that they don't have a very clear strategy right now. Uh, it's, it's really pretty scattershot. Um, and, you know, they opened um, about 22 new stores last year. Um, that's just a handful, but they're, they, they're going into new markets with one store or two stores. Um, and that, that's just not the way you build a grocery business. You need some density. You need some, you need multiple stores in one area. So, so right now their biggest store bases are in, you know, in Chicago, it's in um, LA, it's in, you know, Seattle. Um, but, but it's very, it's very scattershot. And so it's, it's hard to build a lot of traction um, and to really unlock the, the capability scale offers you 
when you're not focused on a geographic area or a city. Is Amazon Grocery what I'm going to order online when I go to the Amazon store, or is Amazon Grocery Whole Foods for me? Wh- which is it? Well, right now, it's it's really more... Isn't it kind of both right now? So then I get confused. It is. <laughs> it is. So so it, it's, it's partly Amazon Fresh Online, which is the delivery to your home. Um, then there's Whole Foods, which is really a more niche customer base for people who are interested in that natural and organic type segment. But the Amazon Fresh grocery stores are meant to be kind of a regular grocery store. They have normal brands in there. Um, they have, you know, produce departments um, where people can actually physically go and do shopping. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're technology-enabled stores, um, which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. So mm-hmm. you've seen a lot of, of, of splash about smart carts, um, you know, and things like that. Um, and so that they're trying to, to, to use all of their technical, technical capabilities and infuse it into a grocery store to reinvent the grocery shopping mm-hmm. uh, experience, but it hasn't really happened yet. As interest rates rise, and if we head into a tougher economic environment, does this make this scenario for Amazon easier or harder to execute? And that, like, will it make people look for the cheapest option and is that Amazon or is it harder because you're trying to cannibalize people from other grocery stores? I think it actually makes it harder for Amazon Hmm. and and it's really because first they are not the most price competitive in any market and that's partly because of that lack of density and scale that I mentioned Um, and second it's it's that they do need to try to be very price competitive to really start to aggregate share away from the Walmarts and the Kroger's of the world. And in a higher rate environment, it's a much more difficult thing to execute on that kind of strategy um, and to be successful at it. Since it's hard to find a true competitor here, mm-hmm. how do we think about success for Amazon in this particular field? I think when you're talking about grocery, yeah. Amazon does sell a lot of groceries, but it skews right now to sort of bulk purchases, right? So you think about the big things of paper towels that might be delivered or things like that. Success is to me, where they really start to show an, a noticeable market share gain in terms of overall grocery spending in the U.S. Um, mm. And that's, that's where it's still a little bit low. Your average shopper who engages online and in-store spends way more with the retailer than if they're engaged in only in-store or only online. And so the, the success to really capturing that share of wallet is to have both offerings so that you're getting the greater amount of spend from every consumer that you attract to your franchise. And so that's Uh, the challenge that Amazon faces. So for the big number picture of that, how much is grocery spend in the U.S. and how much would Amazon share of that have to be? At the end of 2022, the retail sales for food and beverage stores, which is basically the grocery industry, was just shy of a trillion dollars. Um, And so it is a huge market, um, which is part of the, the reason it's tempting. Um, right now, um, no one player has a, 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 a lion's share of that. It is still very fragmented. Um, so if Amazon were able to start to, to build their share to get into like the, the high single digits, low double digits, that's very competitive in such a fractured uh, landscape. Because if you think about where people buy food, it's not just at a grocery store. It's also at a convenience store or at a drugstore sometimes. Um, There are lots of places that people buy food where it aggregates up into that $1 trillion number. 
Jen, thanks a lot. Always the best. Really appreciate Jen Bartashis, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Packaged Food and Retail Staples Analyst. All right, coming up on the program, we're going to talk about CLOs as arbitrage plunges and qualities on the rise. You are listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele, and this is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch the program Saturdays at noon Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. We'll be here each and every week at this time, tapping into our Bloomberg Intelligence analysts covering some 2,000 companies and 130 industries worldwide. Okay, we're going to talk about CLOs, collateralized loan obligations. Now, they've been an active buyer in both loans and bonds. So let's get a little bit deeper into this. What does pricing mean? Is the Fed raise rates? What does this do to the market? If we see defaults, what does that wind up doing to the market? Uh, joining us now is Bloomberg Intelligence Chief European Credit Strategist Mahesh Bingalingam. Mahesh, first of all, you have to give a primer. CLOs, what are they? How do they work? Give us like the I'm talking to my 10-year-old information. So CLOs are essentially a loan derivative. Now, when I say loan, these are not normal loans. These are all leveraged loans. Mm -hmm. So when you have a typically leveraged buyout, now you tend to have, you know, the private equity sitting underneath. And then you got the high yield bonds, which are junior. And on top of it, you got leveraged loans, which are senior. Now, these leveraged loans are the assets for a CLO. So you've got a pool of leveraged loans on the asset side, and that gets tranched into equity, junior, and senior tranches. When I say by seniority, this is by seniority of payment Mm -hmm. and seniority of protection in case there is a default. So basically defaults first hit the equity, then they hit the junior tranche, and then they hit the senior tranche. But payments go the other way. Payments always go first to the senior tranche, then to the junior tranche, and then to equity. So that's essentially a CLO, which is a loan derivative based on leverage loans. All right, Mahesh, so let's just kind of rewind a little bit to 2022 where everything got crushed in the fixed income space. How did the CLO market perform in 2022 and how is it performing this year? Yeah, very good question. You know, 2022, almost all asset classes got crushed, bonds and stocks. I think people are familiar with that theme. But what happened is because loans are floating rate instruments, so when yields and rates do go up, loans aren't hit by that because the rates duration is very, very tiny uh, because they've got a three-month Euribor or three-month USD LIBOR plus a spread. And that the, the LIBOR or Euribor component resets every three months, automatically keeps the duration very low. So they didn't get hit that much. They only got hit on the spread side. So compared to bonds, which have actually gone down to on an average like 82, 83 sort of price at their worst, loans at their worst hit only 90, 91. So they weren't hit as much. And they've already recovered from there, uh, you know, in the rally in the last uh, four or five months. So that's on the loan side. Mm-hmm. What, what has that led to in terms of the CLO side is... Uh, you know, during the downturn, uh, the equity would have performed much worse, uh, but the senior tranches were more or less untouched. Their money good because defaults stayed low. Remember, market repressed, but yeah. we didn't have, but we didn't have that many defaults. Can right? defaults stay low, though, Mahesh? 
can default stay low. Yeah. That's a very good topic. So if you look at uh, Europe, on the bond side, we've had just one index default, a non-index defaults maybe one or two more in the last year. In the lo- On the loan side, because they tend to be slightly hairier credit, because all of them are levered, you see, uh, on the bond side, not all of them are levered. You tend to have junk-rated corporates, which are not LBOs. Mm-hmm. But on the leverage loan side, obviously, the, the name itself says everything is levered. So you tend to have slightly more defaults, but even there, it is like you know half a percent as of now. So the senior tranches are still money good. Even the equity, it's the, given the coupon that it gives, uh, is still uh, you know paying you expected to pay ten to fifteen percent. All right, let's talk about the supply in the market. It seems like deal activity has been relatively muted over the last couple of years. So does that impact your market as well, the CLO market, in terms of issuance of, of new loans and then therefore and thereby uh, CLOs? So supply, because spreads have blown up, I, as I said, you know, the, the Euribor part of it or the LIBOR part of it doesn't matter. But what matters is the spread part. Because the spreads have blown up, uh, new issuance definitely in the leverage loan market has gone down. But the CLO market, because of the arbitrage still works, if you look at the difference between the loan spread and the weighted average spread of the tranches, when I say the tranches, the senior and the junior tranches, because the equity doesn't have anything promised. They just get the residue. So if you take the difference between the asset side input of spread and the liability side output of cost, the ARB is still more than 300 basis points. So all the while, when supply was going down, particularly in the bond markets, the CLOs kept loan market supply active. Now, Will that continue in the future? The ARB has been coming down because of the rally. You know, the loan markets have rallied, Mm -hmm. but the tranche markets, given the defaults are going to go up a bit, the tranche costs have gone up. So what has happened is the ARB has come down from about 370, 380 to about 300 now. So which means you're probably not going to print as much CLO as we did before. So what's the so what of that? So we don't have as many CLO originations. Uh, so, so definitely, I think 2023 mm-hmm. CLO volume, despite markets being in better condition, by the way, because the ARB is down, you will not hit the 2021 numbers for sure. Mm-hmm. You'll probably print a, just a little bit more than 2022. The leverage loan market also uh, will probably print more than 2022. That, that's our forecast. CLOs will support leverage loan issuance. You know, you got like a you got like a captive buyer, unlike the bond market. I think that is that is the key theme. What are the CLOs doing in bonds? Right? I will I will answer that question myself. So now, as we said, this is collateralized loan obligation. But because there aren't enough loans, what CLOs are doing is they're buying bonds now. Bonds in in CLOs is has gone up from zero to ten percent. So like three or four years back, it used to be zero. Now it is 11, 12% now. So increasingly, bonds are being bought by CLO because there aren't enough loans to buy. What types of loans or instruments are being bought by CLOs? Does it change over time? So, yeah, the, the way it works is, you know, the, when a CLO is being structured and the tranches are sold, the CLO goes through a ramp-up period. When the CLO manager is, is essentially being paid to buy and fill the pool, so whenever a CLO is announced and it is and the tranches are being sold to CLO investors, 
the CLO manager is buying loans for about three months or four months in the CLO's ramp-up period. So, yeah, so to your answer, does the mix change? So every time there is new, you get a lot of new loans bought, Mm -hmm. and there is a reinvestment period of about two years when the CLO manager can churn the portfolio. He can actually sell and buy loans depending on the mm-hmm. constraints that the CLO needs to maintain. So, Mahesh, thank you. This is a lot. I feel like we need like a primer on this like every week to get through it and then we can really grow the knowledge. Mahesh, we appreciate yep. it. Thank you for the patience. Mahesh Bimalingam joining us there. Bloomberg Intelligence Chief European Credit Strategist. Thanks so much, Mahesh. Thank you. All right, let's turn now to the opportunity in the U.S. market where Canadian wealth managers continue to snap up shares. For more on why Canadian wealth is expanding to the south, we're joined by Bloomberg Intelligence Equity Research Associate Ethan Kay. All right, so we've got Canadian wealth managers trying to buy their way into the U.S. market. I'm guessing the reason is because that's where the money is. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, when we look at the U.S. market uh, relative to Canada, uh, first thing we, we take a look at is the, just you know the relative size. So, U.S. we got over 25 trillion of, of wealth assets. Canada, that number is closer to four to five trillion. So that gives you a sense of relative market size. Um, second thing we point to is really the fragmentation in the U.S. market. So you know, versus the Canadian market. So Canada is largely concentrated. Uh, banks, you know, you got these big entrenched banks that control about half of of that opportunity there. Other and the other half there is also kind of consists of some large insurance companies, some a couple of bigger independent wealth managers. Mm-hmm. So of that already smaller Canadian market, you know, much less is up for grabs. U.S., on the other hand, you know, while banks and, and wealth managers certainly have their fair share there, um, there's still over $14 trillion of assets in sitting in RIAs that manage under $10 billion in, in AUM. So kind of makes the U.S. a good breeding ground there for, for consolidation. And then last point, um, high net worth. So... The U.S. is home to the most millionaires by a pretty wide margin. Uh, 39% of, of millionaires worldwide live in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And that number is 4% in Canada. Coming up on the program, we'll get more on Canadian wealth expanding into the U.S. with Bloomberg Intelligence Equity Research Associate Ethan Kay. You're listening to Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. You can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney. And this is Bloomberg. Schwab Trading is now powered by Ameritrade to give you a new, elevated trading experience tailor-made for trader minds. Go deeper with Thinkorswim, the powerful, award-winning trading platforms now at Schwab. Unlock support from the Trade Desk, our team of passionate traders who live and breathe trading like you do. And sharpen your skills with an expanding library of online education crafted just for traders. All designed to help you trade brilliantly. Learn more at schwab.com trading. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. 
Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to the Bloomberg Intelligence Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at noon Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to our conversation on Canadian wealth in the U.S. market. Bloomberg Intelligence Equity Research Associate Ethan Kaye is still with us. So when I think about the RIA business, Registered Investment Advisors, I think kind of small groups. Um, Talk to us about that business and how the Canadian fund managers may look at that business as an area of growth. So I think there's some pretty interesting differences between the kind of business model, the RA business model that you're talking about, um, and the the Canada business model. And, and it's kind of evolved from some regulatory and business, um, you know, regulatory and business environment there. So the U.S. has kind of a stricter fiduciary standard or value proposition there is that they're independent. They're, you know, not necessarily incentivized to sell certain products, taking a more holistic view. Whereas in Canada, it's more of a distribution-based model. So we see this dynamic where, you know, the wealth managers sit under the same roof as the asset managers. So you got, you know, product distribution and product manufacturing uh, under the same roof and the advisors are largely there to, to distribute products. Um, so, you know, the compensation there is historically tied more to sales. And, um, you know, so so that leads to these business models where in the U.S. you get these independent RIAs that generate fees and higher margins. And then in Canada, you have kind of this broke, more kind of broker-dealer model where the synergies are really, you know, generated from cross-selling products. Mm-hmm. Is, is the price and valuation of these wealth managers now, like, super high? Like, is this a really bad time to be putting money into this? So um, they're certainly paying up for, for the growth and kind of the margin superiority there. Um, these are kind of longer term visions. So, you know, they're looking 10, 15 years out. So certainly there's some, um, you know, they're certainly paying a premium. And, um, you know, a lot of the deals are done kind of outside of public markets. Um, you know, they're smaller RIA, RIA, so we don't have full info on them, but we, we do have some visibility into some recent deals and, you know, we saw one of the largest Canadian, independent Canadian wealth managers selling a piece of, of their Canadian business to fund uh, a U.S. business. And that's probably a good, you know, good um, good deal to look at because it kind of includes both of those um, regions. And we get we, we saw them selling their Canadian business at two times managed assets and, and buying the U.S. business at three times managed assets. That's so pretty significant difference that there. Is. Hey, so I seem to remember Bank of Montreal. Um, they bought uh, Bank of the West, and that seemed like a pretty notable deal for me. Is that kind of one of the the standout deals of a Canadian bank buying a U.S. Uh, manager? Yeah, so I, I think that deal um, is is probably more um, on the banking side than the wealth management side. I, I think Bank of the West had about thirteen thirteen trillion in assets, so. I mean, but, but to your point, we're seeing, um, you know, we're seeing this dynamic play out not only in wealth management, but also banking, where 
you know, the, the, the sheer, you know, size of the market is attracting, um, you know, foreign businesses. Um, do you feel that, or is it possible that the banking turmoil, the regional banking turmoil that sort of blew uh, up here creates opportunity for some of the Canadian wealth managers? And I appreciate that a lot of it's going to be deposit-based or it's going to be traditional banking, but in a lot of these areas, there was some wealth management going on. Yeah, it, it's certainly possible. Um, I will say the, you know, I don't want to necessarily comment on speculate on deals, but... Um, sure, but the know, idea the that side, like there, there, there's more players out there that, that can be taken in... Advantage of sounds really bad, but there are more players out there. <laughs> yeah, certainly. I mean, I mean, anytime you have more opportunity there, it's going to be, um, you know, it's going to be attractive for those guys. I, I would agree with that. All right. Well, Ethan, thanks a lot. We really appreciate it. Ethan Kay, he joins us, a Bloomberg Intelligence Equity Research Associate. That's this week's edition of Bloomberg Intelligence on Bloomberg Radio, providing in-depth research and data on 2,000 companies and 130 industries. And remember, you can access Bloomberg Intelligence through BI Go on the terminal. I'm Alex Steele. And I'm Paul Sweeney, and this is Bloomberg. Osage County, Oklahoma is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.